The following sermon by Jonathan Edwards is called Wicked Men Useful in Their Destruction Only. It is taken from Ezekiel 15, 2-4. Son of man, what is a vine tree more than any tree? Or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest, shall wood be taken from it to do any work? Or will men take a pen of it to hang any vessel on? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both, the ends of it and the midst of it is burned. Is it fit for any work? The visible church of God is here compared to the vine tree. This is evident by God's own explanation of the allegory in verses 6 to 8. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, is a vine tree among the trees of the forest which I have given to the fire for fuel. So will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem and it may be understood of mankind in general. So it is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 32, their vine is a vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah, their graves are graves of gall, and especially as professing people in Psalm 80, verse 8, thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. In verse 14, look down from heaven, behold, Behold and visit this vine, and Song of Solomon 2.15, the foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Jeremiah 2, verse 21, I have planted you a noble vine. Hosea 10, verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. So in chapter 15 of John, visible Christians are compared to the branches of a vine. Man is very fitly represented by the vine. The weakness and dependence of the vine on other things which support it well represents to us what a poor, feeble, dependent creature man is, and how if left to himself he falls into mischief and cannot help himself. The visible people of God are fitly compared to a vine because of the care and cultivation of the husbandman or vine dresser. The business of husbandmen in the land of Israel was very much about vines and the care they exercise to fence them, to defend them, to prune them, to prop them up, and to cultivate them, well represented that merciful care which God exercises towards his visible people. In the words now read, is represented, now wholly useless and unprofitable, even beyond other trees, a vine is, in case of unfruitfulness. What is a vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? In other words, if it doesn't bear fruit, men make much more of a vine than of other trees. They take great care of it, to wall it in, to dig about it, to prune it, and the like. It is much more highly esteemed than one of the trees of the forest they are despised in comparison with it. And if it bear fruit, it is indeed much preferable to other trees, for the fruit of it yields a noble liquor, as it is said in Jotham's parable in Judges 9 verse 13. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine with cheers, God and man? But if it bear no fruit, it is more unprofitable than the trees of the forest. For the wood of them is good for timber, but the wood of the vine is fit for no work. Is in the text, shall wood be taken from it to do any work, or will men take a pen of it to hang any vessel thereon? The only thing for which a vine is useful in case of barrenness is for fuel. Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. It is wholly consumed. No part of it is worth a saving to make any instrument of it for any work. Doctrine 
If men bring forth no fruit to God, they are wholly useless unless in their destruction. For the proof of this doctrine I shall show first that there can be but two ways in which man can be useful, namely, either in acting or to be acted upon. Number two, that man can in no otherwise be useful actively than by bringing forth fruit to God. Number three, that if it bring not forth fruit to God, there is no other way in which he can be passively useful but in being destroyed. Number four, in that way he may be useful without bearing fruit. There are but two ways in which man can be useful, namely either in acting or being acted upon. If man be useful, he must be so either actively or passively. There is no middle ground. What can be more plain than if any man do nothing himself, and nothing be done with him or upon him by any other? He cannot be any way at all useful. If man does nothing himself to promote the end of his existence, and no other being does anything with him to promote this end, then nothing will be done to promote this end. And so man must be wholly useless. So that there are but two ways in which man can be useful to any purpose, namely either actively or passively, either in doing something himself, or in being the subject of something done to him. Number two, man cannot be useful actively any otherwise than in bringing forth fruit to God, serving God, and living to his glory. This is the only way in which he can be useful in doing, and that for this reason, that the glory of God is the very thing for which man was made, and to which all other ends are subordinate. Man is not an independent being, but he derives his being from another, and therefore has his end assigned to him by that other. And he who gave him his being made him for the end now mentioned. This was a very design and aim of the author of man. This was a work for which he made him, namely, to serve and glorify his maker. Other creatures, did or inferior, were made for inferior purposes. But man is the highest and nearest to God, of any in this lower world, and therefore his business is with God, although other creatures are made for lower ends. There may be observed a kind of gradual ascent, in the order of different creatures, from the meanest clod of earth, to man, who is a rational and immortal soul, a plant, an herb, or tree, his superior nature to a stone or a clod of dirt, because it has a vegetable life, to brew creatures or a degree higher still, for they have a sensitive life. But man, having a rational soul, is the highest of this lower creation, and is next to God. Therefore his business is with God. Things without life, as earth, water, and so on, are subservient to things above them. It's a grass, herbs, and trees. These vegetables are subservient to that order of creatures which is next above them. The brute creation. Dear food for them. Brute creatures again are made for the use and service of the order above them. Dear made. For the service of mankind. But man being the highest of this lower creation, the next step from him is to God. He therefore is made for the service and glory of God. This is the whole work and business of man. It is his highest end, to which all other ends are subordinate. If it had not been for this end, there never would have been any such creature. 
there would have been no occasion for it. Other inferior ends may be answered as well without any such creature as man. There would have been no sort of occasion for making so noble a creature and enduing him with such faculties only to enjoy earthly good, to eat, and to drink, and to enjoy sensual things, brute creatures without reason are capable of these things as well as man. Yea, if no higher end be aimed at than to enjoy sensitive good, reason is rather a hindrance than a help. It doth but render man the more capable of afflicting himself with care, fears of death, and other future evils, and of vexing himself with many anxieties from which brute creatures are wholly free, and therefore can gratify their senses with less molestation. Besides, reason but makes men more capable of molesting and impeding one another in the gratification of their senses. If man has no other end but to seek to gratify his senses, reason is nothing but an impediment. Therefore, if man be not made to serve and glorify his creator, it is wholly to no purpose that such a creature is made. Doubtless, then, the all-wise God who does all things in infinite wisdom has made man for this end. And this is agreeable to what he has taught us in many places in the scriptures. Yes, it's a great end for which man was made, and for which he was made such a creature having bodily senses and rational powers. For this is he placed in such circumstances, and the earth has given him for a possession. For this, he has dominion given him over the rest of the terrestrial creatures. For this reason the sun shines, and the rain falls on him, and the moons and stars are for signs and seasons to him. And the earth yields him her increase. All other ends of man are subordinate to this. There are indeed inferior ends for which man was made. Men were made for one another, for their friends and neighbors, and for the good of the public. But all these inferior ends are designed to be subordinate to the higher end of glorifying God. Therefore a man cannot be actively useful otherwise than by actively bringing forth fruit to God, because this is not actively useful which does not actively answer its end. That which does not answer its end is in vain. For that is the meaning of the proposition that anything is in vain. So that which does not actively answer its end is as to its own activity in vain. That is to its own activity is altogether useless, which actively answers only subordinate ends without answering the ultimate end, because the latter is the end of subordinate ones. Subordinate ends are to no purpose, only as they stand related to the highest end. Therefore, these inferior ends are good for nothing, though they may be obtained, unless they also obtain their end. Inferior ends are not aimed at for their own sake, but only for the sake of that which is ultimate. Therefore, he that fails of this is as much to no purpose as if he did not obtain a subordinate end. If men do not bring forth fruit to God, then, there is no other way in which they can be useful passively, but in being destroyed. They are fit for nothing else. They are not fit to be allowed to continue always in this world. It is not fit that this world should be the constant abode of those who bring forth no fruit to God.
It is not fit that the barren tree should be allowed always to stand in the vineyard. The husbandman lets it stand for a while, till he digs about it, dungs it, and proves it to be incurable, or until a convenient time to cut it down come. But it is not fit that they who bring forth no fruit to God should be allowed to live always in a world which is so full of the divine goodness or that his goodness should be spent upon them forever. This world, though fallen and under a curse, has many streams of divine goodness, but it is not fit that those who bring forth no fruit to God should always be continued in partaking of these streams. There are three different states, one in which nothing but good, which is heaven, another wherein is a mixture of good and evil, which is the earthly state, and a third wherein is nothing but evil which is the state of eternal destruction. Now, they that bring forth no fruit to God are not fit for either of the former. It isn't fit that an unprofitable and fruitful creature who will not glorify his creator should always live here to consume the fruits of divine bounty, to have the good things of this life spent upon him in vain. While a man lives here, the other creatures are subjected to him. The brute creatures serve him with their labor and with their lives. The sun, moon, and stars, the clouds filled in trees all serve him. But why should God always keep his creatures in subjection to that man who will not be subject to him? Why should the creation be always kept in such bondage as to be subject to wicked men? The creatures indeed are made subject to vanity. God has subjected them to wicked men and given them forth their use. This, however, he would not have done, but as it is only for a little while, and the creatures can bear it through the hope of approaching deliverance, otherwise it would have been intolerable. Romans 8 verse 20 For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. The creature, as it were, groans, by reason of this subjection to wicked men, although it be but for a while, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails and pain together until now. Therefore, surely it would be no way fit that wicked men who do no good and bring forth no fruit to God should live here always, to have the various creatures subservient to them as they are now. The earth can scarcely bear wicked men during that short time for which they stay here. It is no way fit, therefore, that it should be forced to bear them always. Men, who bring forth no fruit to God, are cumberers of the ground. Luke 13.7 And it is not fit that they should be allowed to cumber the ground always. God cannot be glorified in this way of disposing of unfruitful persons. If such men should be allowed to live always in such a state as this, it would be so far from being to the glory of God that it would be to disparagement of its wisdom to continue them in a state so unsuitable for them. It would also be a disparagement to his justice, for this is a world where all things come alike, to all, and there is one event to the righteous and to the wicked. If there were no other state but this for wicked men, justice could not possibly take place. It would also reflect upon the holiness of God forever to uphold this world for a habitation of such persons, and forever to continue the communication of his bounty and goodness to them, would appear as though he were disposed to countenance and encourage 
their wickedness. Number two, if men do not bring forth fruit to God, they are not fit to be disposed of in heaven. Heaven, above all other places, is the most improper place for them. Everything appertaining to that state is unsuitable for them. The company there is most unsuitable. The original inhabitants of that world are the angels. But what a disagreeable union would that be to unite wicked men and angels in the same society? The employments of that world are unsuitable. The employments are serving and glorifying God. How unsuitable then would it be to plant barren trees in a heavenly paradise? Trees that would bring forth no fruit to the divine glory. The enjoyments of heaven are unsuitable. The enjoyments are holy and spiritual. The happiness of beholding the glory of God and praising his name and the like. These enjoyments are as unsuitable as can be to the carnal earthly minds of wicked men. They would be no enjoyments to them, but on the contrary would be most disagreeable in what they cannot relish, but entirely nauseate. The design of heaven is unsuitable to them. The design of God in making heaven was that it might be a place of a holy habitation for the reward of the righteous, and not a habitation for the wicked. It would greatly reflect on the wisdom of God to dispose of wicked men there, for it would be the greatest confusion. But God is not the author of confusion. It would be contrary to the holiness of God to take wicked men so near to himself into his glorious presence, to dwell forever in the part of that creation which is, as it were, his own palace, and to sit at his table. We read in Psalm 5-4, You are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with you. Therefore it would be impossible that the end of the existence of wicked men should be answered by placing them in heaven. Number 4. Men may yet in suffering destruction be useful. Although they are not useful by anything they do, yet they may be useful in what they may suffer, just as a barren tree which is no way useful standing in a vineyard may be good for fuel. God can find use for the most wicked of men. He has his use for vessels of wrath, as well as vessels of mercy, Second Timothy 2 verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made all things for himself. He even the wicked for the day of evil. I shall briefly take notice of some ends which God accomplishes by it. 1. Unfruitful persons are of use in their destruction for the glory of God's justice. The vindictive justice of God is a glorious attribute as well as his mercy, and the glory of this attribute appears in the everlasting destruction and ruin of the barren and unfruitful. The glory of divine justice and the perdition of ungodly men appears wonderful and glorious in the eyes of the saints and angels in heaven. Hence we have an account that they sing praises to God and extol his justice at the sight of the awful judgments which he inflicts on wicked men. Revelation 16, 5 and 6. You are righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because you have judged us. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For they are worthy. 
In Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2, And after these things I heard a great voice saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged a great whore, which corrupted the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Number 2. And fruitful persons and their destruction are views for God to glorify his majesty upon them. The awful majesty of God remarkably appears in those dreadful and amazing punishments which he inflicts on those who rise up against him. A sense of the majesty of an earthly prince is supported very much by a sense of its being a dreadful thing to affront him. God glorifies his own majesty in the destruction of wicked men, and herein he appears infinitely great and that it appears to be an infinitely dreadful thing to offend him. How awful does the majesty of God appear in the dreadfulness of his anger? This we may learn to be one end of the damnation of the wicked. From Romans 9.22 What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction? This is a part of his majesty and glory. God tells Pharaoh that, for this cause he raised him up, that he might show his power in him, and that his name might be declared throughout all the earth. In his destruction, Exodus 9 verse 15 and 16, and again in chapter 14, 17, I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all of his host, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Number 3. The destruction of the unfruitful is of use to give the saints a greater sense of their happiness and of God's grace to them. The wicked will be destroyed and tormented in the view of the saints and other inhabitants of heaven. This we are taught in Revelation 14.10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of his holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And in Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go forth, and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. When the saints in heaven shall look upon the damned in hell, it will serve to give them a greater sense of their own happiness. When they shall see how dreadful the anger of God is, it will make them the more prize his love. They will rejoice the more that they are not the objects of God's anger, but of his favor, that they are not the subjects of his dreadful wrath, but are treated as his children to dwell in the everlasting embraces of his love. The misery of the damned will give them a greater sense of the distinguishing grace and love of God to them, that he should from all eternity set his love on them, and make so great a difference between them and others, who are of the same species, and have deserved no worse of God than they. What a great sense will this give them of the wonderful grace of God to them, and how will it heighten their praises? With how much greater admiration and exultation of soul will they sing of the free and sovereign grace of God to them, when they shall look upon the damned and see their misery? How will heaven ring with the praises of God's justice towards the wicked in his grace? 
towards the saints. And with how much greater enlargement of heart will they praise Jesus Christ, their Redeemer, that ever he was pleased to set his love upon them, his dying love, and that he should so distinguish them as to shed his blood, and make his soul an offering to redeem them from their misery and to bring them to such happiness. With what love and ecstasy will they sing that song in Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tongue and kindred and people and nation. And you have made us to God kings and priests. One end which the apostle mentions, why God appointed vessels of wrath, is the more to make known the wonderfulness of his mercy towards the saints. And in Romans 9, 22 and 23, there are two ends mentioned. What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured, with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction? That is one end. Another is mentioned immediately after, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has afforded prepared to glory. Application Hence we may learn how just and righteous God is in the destruction of those who bring forth no fruit to him, seeing there is no other way in which the end of their being can be obtained. Certainly, it is most just that God should thus dispose of them. Why should he be frustrated of his end through their perverseness? If men will not do the work for which he has made and fitted them, if they, through a spirit of opposition and rebellion, refuse, why should God allow himself to be disappointed of his end in making them? It does not become his infinite greatness and majesty to allow himself to be frustrated by the wickedness and perverseness of sinful worms of the dust. If God should allow this, it would seem to argue either a lack of wisdom to fix upon a good end or a lack of power to accomplish it. God made all men that they might be useful, and if they will not be useful in their conduct and actions, but just as it that God should make them useful in their sufferings, he made all men for his own glory. And if they, contrary to the revealed will of God, refuse to glorify him actively and willingly, how just is it that God should glorify himself upon them? Men are under no natural necessity of being put to this use of glorifying God in their sufferings. God gives them opportunity of glorifying him and bringing forth fruit, puts them under the advantages for it, and uses many means to bring them to it. But if they will not be useful in this way, it is very just that God should make them useful in the only remaining way in which they can be useful, namely, in their destruction. God is not forward to put them to this use. He tells us that he has, in Ezekiel 33.11, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. He represents the destruction of sinners as a work to which he is backward. Yet, it is fit that they should be destroyed, rather than that they should be allowed to frustrate the end of their being. Who can blame the husbandman for cutting down and burning a barren tree after he has digged about it and dunged it and used all proper means to make it fruitful? Let those among us consider this. 
who have lived all their lives hitherto unprofitably, and never have brought forth any fruit to God's glory, notwithstanding all the means that have been used with them. Consider how just it would be if God should destroy you, and glorify himself upon you in that way, and what a wonderful patience it is that God has not done it before now. Number two. The subject ought to put you upon examining yourselves whether you are not wholly useless creatures. You've now heard that those who bring forth no fruit to God are, as to any good they do, wholly useless. Inquire, therefore, whether you have ever done anything from a gracious respect to God, or out of love to Him, taking only your worldly interest, or for you to come to public worship on the Sabbath to pray in your families and other such things merely in compliance with the general custom, or that you are sober, moral, and religious, only to be seen of men, or out of respect to your own credit and honor. This is not bringing forth fruit to God. How is that for God which is only the sake of custom and esteem of men, or merely from their fear of hell? What thanks is due to you for not loving your own misery, and for being willing to take some pains to escape burning in hell to all eternity. There is not a devil in hell but would do the same. Hosea 10 verse 1 Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit only to himself. There is no fruit brought forth to God where there is nothing done from love or true respect to him. God looks at the heart. He does not stand in need of our services. Neither is he benefited by anything that we can do. He does not receive anything of us, but only as a suitable testimony of our love and respect to him. This is a fruit that he seeks. Men themselves will not accept of those shows of friendship which they think are hypocritical and come not from the heart. How much less should God, who searches the hearts and tries the reins of the children of men, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Inquire, therefore, whether you ever did the least thing out of love to God. Have you not done all for yourselves? When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, Zechariah 7, 5, and 6, Even those seventy years did you all fast unto me, even unto me, and when ye ate, and when you drank, did you not for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Another use of the subject may be of conviction and humiliation to those who never have brought forth any fruit to God. If upon examination you find that you have never in all of your lives done anything out of a true respect to God, then it has been demonstrated that, as to anything which you do, you are altogether a useless creature. And consider what a shameful thing it is for such rational beings as you are, in place under such advantages for usefulness. Yet, to be wholly useless, and to live in the world to no purpose. We esteem it a very mean character in any person that he is worthless and insignificant, and to be called so is taken as a great reproach. But consider seriously whether you can clear yourselves of this character, that reason to work. Can you rationally suppose that you do in any measure answer the end for which God gave you your being, and made you of a nature superior to the beasts?